Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Liverpool Echo, Hull Daily Mail and Huddersfield Examiner. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, covering the North every day with an email newsletter that drops in your inbox just before lunchtime and brings you up to date with the latest political news from our region. Visit www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. Today's political heavyweight is the North's only Liberal Democrat MP, former party leader Tim Farron, talking about his party's hopes of breaching the green wall of Tory-held rural seats and his fears that rise in second homes and holiday lets are turning villages in his Cumbrian constituency into ghost towns. You know, so for instance, I come across a, a couple in Ambleside uh, in the Lake District. Um, both of them work locally, not, neither of them very well paid, two small children. Uh, they had a flat, a perfectly nice flat, above shops in the village centre. Um, they were given their notice to leave. They were paying something like £800 a month for this uh, place and uh, they're out on their ear and they find out maybe a week or two after they've uh, moved to somewhere else, had to leave the area altogether by the way because there was nowhere they could find, that they that their old property is on the market for Airbnb for £1,200 a month a week. And in York, local democracy reporter Joe Cooper tells us about how the historic Roman city is suffering from an identity crisis as it wrestles with the need to build more houses and tackle the council's perceived culture problem. So just last month, um, a local government association official who's been working with the council for many years said, you've got to get a grip on this problem once and for all, sort it out, you know, um, sort of, it was a telling off, grow up, um, and said they should stop blaming their problems on the fact they have a volatile political makeup. But first, we couldn't air an edition of the Northern Agenda podcast without touching on the biggest issue right now for the region and the rest of the country, namely the surge in COVID-19 cases and hospitalisations caused by the Omicron variant. Two hospital trusts in our region have already declared critical incidents as we go to air, and it seems the North is now at the epicentre of the latest wave of the pandemic, with worrying implications for the NHS. So to find out what's currently going on and what's perhaps in store for our region, let's turn to Helena Vesti, the Manchester Evening News' NHS, social care and patients writer. Helena, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me again, Rob. No problem at all. So things have ramped up quite significantly across the health and care system in the north, in the country, and particularly in your patch of Greater Manchester in the last few days. So what pressures are we seeing right now and where did they come from? Well, at the moment, Rob, we're seeing the crest of a tidal wave that has been building for for many months. In many ways, it's reminiscent of the crisis at the beginning of the, the pandemic, but with so much heaped on to a significant spike in COVID cases, which has been brought on by Omicron and the social mixing that so many of us have been doing in the last few weeks. 
as far as Christmas and New Year goes. We've had these quite colossal COVID rates in the last sort of few days to a week. In Greater Manchester, that looks like upwards of 2,000 COVID cases per 100,000 people. And we've never seen those kinds of numbers so far in the pandemic. So that's an extremely concerning number just on its own. As an aside, we have extremely high levels of bed occupancy in our hospitals here. And that's been seen across the North, but also across the UK as well. At the moment, Manchester's hospitals are teetering around the 90% mark of all beds. And that rises to 96% if you're excluding ICU beds. And we understand that one in four of these patients has COVID. For some context there, health leaders have told me that anything over 85% becomes extremely uncomfortable in terms of capacity for hospital. And as a result of the rise in COVID just in society, we're now being told that there's more patient transmission leading to entire wards being shut down in an attempt to stop the spread actually in hospital. Again, this makes the the situation within hospitals that much more difficult because bed numbers are somewhat more limited. It all just adds to the pressure of the, the general NHS system at the moment. And of course, we can't forget that all of this, the COVID, the bed occupancy, is set to the backdrop of great numbers of staff absence because they're not immune to COVID themselves. They contract it or have to isolate because they know somebody who has it. And the rule in the NHS is that they must do so until they get a negative test. And in Greater Manchester, we've currently got 15% of all NHS staff absent looking to the more national picture that translates into tens of thousands of staff members who are vitally needed to deal with this massive demand who are now off sick across the country not only that it's made worse by pcr and lateral flow test shortages which we've seen in recent days making matters even worse the social care sector's historic staff shortages and of course the outbreaks that they're having within that sector on their own We're now in a situation where a lot of care homes across the country, and particularly in the north, aren't able to take new residents because either there's COVID outbreaks within the homes themselves or they just don't have the staff to cope with more people. And in Greater Manchester, what this looks like is more than 600 patients who are medically fit to be discharged, who are now sitting in a hospital bed, stuck because there's nowhere to send them. And that's not an insignificant number when you're looking at this level of bed occupancy and the kind of demand that is currently on our hospitals. I see that two NHS trusts in the north of England have declared critical incidents. I think Morecambe Bay and Blackpool trusts, whereas in Greater Manchester, as far as I can see, that hasn't happened. But other measures have been taken. So what what's can you just explain what a critical incident is and why some places have declared them and others haven't? Of course. Listeners will have seen that a number of trusts, which uh, are the bodies that operate our hospitals, have declared what's called a critical internal incident in in the north. That has mainly happened in Lancashire with the two trusts that you've um, mentioned. What that means is hospitals get to a, a certain level of pressure, a certain level of concern where staff feel that they could be prevented from providing their core services effectively and safely for patients. And the declaration of a critical incident creates an interim kind of emergency governance structure where it's a lot easier for hospital bosses to get different kinds of help 
to smooth out those pressures and then return to normal service. And a critical incident can last anywhere from five minutes to five days. Um, It really is quite specific to the hospital itself. In Manchester, for example, we haven't seen critical incidents being declared because one of the main things that declaring such an incident provides is the ability to get mutual aid. And what that means is when one hospital is overwhelmed with patients, admissions exceed the number of discharges and there's a shortage of beds, patients can actually be diverted to another nearby hospital. What Greater Manchester already has is that mutual aid service anyway. It's been operating throughout the pandemic quite effectively to ensure that if one hospital is suffering, particularly in Greater Manchester, quite easily they can look at a dashboard and send a patient somewhere else that will be better suited to treat them because they might be seeing less demand at a different hospital. So it's it's really a measure to look at demand and kind of move people about depending on the easiest solution for both staff and patients there. That's why critical incidents depend very much on the hospital and the trust, because it's entirely based on the kind of very specific pressures that they're suffering at any given moment. Each place has its distinct problems, its own workforce issues, and hence they make different decisions. Elsewhere, if we've not declared a critical incident at a hospital, we're seeing Nightingale surge wards for patients who are still testing positive but don't need constantly monitoring. So that is kind of freeing up general beds. Mothballed wards are coming back into use to create more bed space. And ICU staff are getting shifted around to treat general patients. And those are some of the other measures that can be put in place if hospital, for example, doesn't declare a critical incident. And that's certainly what we've been seeing in Greater Manchester. Perhaps the most significant development of the past week in the patch I cover is the cancellation of um, a lot of non-urgent surgeries and appointments. And that has happened at a couple of other trusts uh, around the country. In Greater Manchester, all but two of our hospitals cancelled those kinds of surgeries and appointments and limited care to COVID patients and emergency surgeries, including cancer, cardiac, vascular and transplant operations. I'm told the majority of outpatient work will continue, but that's quite a huge move to cancel those kinds of operations in one fell swoop, not least because we saw that policy employed at the beginning of the pandemic when there was obviously a a large spike in COVID cases and all of the operations that were cancelled at that time are still, people are still waiting for that treatment. So to cancel them again, you've got sort of double the amount of people who will be needing those surgeries just further down the line and they'll progressively be getting worse in terms of their their condition. And while it's a decent short-term fix, I, I think a lot of people have concerns that later down the line, the amount of work that will be needed to be done to catch up with those surgeries is, is just massive. And I don't think we can underestimate that. The data that we're getting seems to suggest that in London, the peak has apparently passed both of hospitalizations and new cases and you know the the north is now entering the phase that london was in pre-christmas and so what does the prognosis look like for you know greater manchester and the wider north in terms of how how they deal with the sort of surgeon surgeon demand and what that might mean going forward these measures that have been put in place to deal with this quite emergency 
level of pressure. I'm told they'll be under constant review, but a lot of sources are saying that it's going to get worse here before it gets better. The North has been slightly behind London with this wave. And like you say, data suggests it's steadying out somewhat in the capital. But we in the North are still yet to see the peak as far as COVID goes. And one thing that's worth mentioning is that obviously schools have gone back this week. We have already seen a rise in the number of children going into hospital because of COVID, along with regular winter bugs. I don't think it's rocket science to suggest that in 10 days' time, testing sites will be full of children and a proportion of those will need hospital care. Will they be able to access it, given, at least for Greater Manchester, our bed occupancy rates are really high? Another thing that's worth talking about when we are discussing the difference between London and the rest of the country. It's very difficult to compare because, as I said, when talking about critical care incidents, every trust is very individual in the problems that it has. London, for example, is is a well-resourced city with its own demographics, its own patterns of infection, its own absence rate in terms of NHS staff. And I, I just want to quote a series of tweets that the CEO of NHS Providers, which is um, a membership organisation which all NHS trusts are a part of. Chris Hopson, yesterday, January 5th, he said that CEOs outside of London gave a number of reasons why their local system may be less able to cope with the pressures in comparison to the way that London has. And that's, as I said, demographics, patterns of infection, hospitalisations and sickness absence will be different now in comparison to when London was seeing the peak. Trusts will be in different positions to start with in terms of caseload. Several saying that they've started already with higher bed occupancy, both COVID and non-COVID before the Omicron wave. There's multiple workforce issues. Different areas have different abilities to access agency workers if they're outside of London. Geography, distance, social care... It's all very different in in various parts of the country, whether you're in an urban environment, a rural environment. And I think the the national voices have been have been saying that the NHS can somewhat ride it out. But I know that phrase has caused some concern among figures in the north and among figures within the NHS because to ride it out is quite a difficult prediction to make because so much of it is dependent on the very specific issues that each area has and the north is no exception. Now, if, like me, you're planning to stay domestic with your holiday this year, there's a good chance you'll be looking at some of the wonderful scenic locations across the north for your break, whether it's Northumberland, the Yorkshire Dales or the Lake District. But the increasing value of the tourist pound to destinations like these is having an unwelcome side effect as more and more properties are turned into holiday lets and second homes in rural towns and villages in the north. Among those concerned about the trend is our guest today, Tim Farron, the Liberal Democrat MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale, who fears landlords in his Cumbrian constituency are evicting tenants to replace them with holidaymakers in what he calls a Lakeland clearance. 
Mr. Farron raises the issue in a Westminster debate this week, and I'm fascinated to know what solutions he proposes to an issue that's on the minds of policymakers in many areas of the North and nationwide. So, Tim Farron, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. So, for people unfamiliar with this, and just to set the scene, how big a problem is this issue of holiday lets and second homes in your constituency? Well, it was already a huge problem uh, long before COVID. Um, we have a situation where this obviously, as you've said, is a really attractive part of the world and house prices are huge, incomes are not. And the average house price here is about 11 times the average household income. So to give you, uh, a, it gives you a picture really of a place where if you've got money, you can afford to live here. And if you haven't, you are really struggling. We need to build many more council houses than we do. We're building a lot more. We've built over a thousand in the last few years, but it's not enough to keep pace. But what's happened over the pandemic is that a bad situation has got worse. Two things have happened, really. First of all, something like 80% of all the house sales in the last year to two years have been into the second homes market, by which I mean people who buy a house, it is their house, and they spend a few weekends a year there, maybe they're bolt up might be investment, but it's a uh, it, it's an investment, but it's also a recreational thing for them. But the second statistic, which is if not even more uh, terrifying, is that we've seen an increase in the number of holiday lets in South Lakeland, which you can imagine is you know had tons of holiday lets to start off with, an increase in just twelve months of thirty two percent in the number of holiday lets. Now, where are those holiday lets coming from? No one's just magic them up from nowhere. And what we're finding anecdotally is that it is people who've lived here in private rented accommodation, often people working in hospitality or in the care sector or in other low or middle uh, range paid jobs, um, they're being evicted uh, and they're being replaced by Holdilets more often than not Airbnb as a particular platform. And it, you know, so for instance, I come across a, a couple in Ambleside uh, in the Lake District um, both of them work locally, not, neither of them very well paid, but two small children. Uh, they had a flat, perfectly nice flat above shops in the village centre. Um, they were given their notice to leave. They were paying something like £800 a month for this uh, place. And uh, they're out on their ear and they find out maybe a week or two after they've uh, moved to somewhere else, had to leave the area altogether, by the way, because there was nowhere they could find, that they that their old property is on the market for Airbnb for £1,200 a week. Now, that is clearly seeing a reduction in the local community. I refer to it as the Lakeland clearances, which I know is a little bit on the um, extreme side when it comes to hyperbole, but, you know, the, what were the Highland clearances? They were landlords realising that they could make more money uh, out of their land than having people renting and live, making their lives there. And that appears to be what's happening here. And that's what I think we need to do something to stop. And your concern, obviously, is that if the trend that you're describing, if it continues, the you know it's going to rip the heart, not literally, out of some of these communities and the, the people that make these communities what they are are no longer going to be there and it will just be people who are visiting from other areas and that will sort of ruin the character of these of these places. Yeah, we are not miserable about people visiting. You know, I, I think it's wonderful that we are... A, one of the great things about serving this community and working in this community is as well as all the wonderful people who live here, you meet people on the holidays and that makes it a really happy place, you know. So I, we, we want to welcome people. And it's uh, and let's remember, though, that national parks were an ideal um, established by the government after the war so that 
um, these beautiful places were not just the preserve of the few, but they were for everybody. And that means everybody to come and visit, but it also means a microcosm um, for you know the full range of people to be able to live here and not just people who are wealthy. The impact on communities like ours of what is happening is to our housing stock is that you found that there's there's a much older population. So the average age of the population in South Lakeland was already 10 years above the national average before COVID. It'll be more still now, I suspect. Um, you then means that you've got a much smaller workforce. So a very good friend of mine who needs, uh, uh, who's got multiple disabilities, who needs full-time care, um, he's having to stop all sorts of the activities that he would normally do because he just can't recruit carers. Um, and, you know, he... he it's a very attractive job working for my friend, I'm going to say. Um, but there are lots of other people and lots of other um, care agencies and other employers simply not able to function because they can't find the staff. Now, part of that is because the government's new visa rules, but part of it is because there is now a reducing uh, pool of local labour because there's nowhere for them to live anymore. And that's going to affect the viability of local schools. It's going to affect the viability of the local economy. You've got people who struggled their way through COVID, kept their businesses going, you know, admittedly with some help from the government, of course, which we're very grateful for. But having got their way through COVID and survived, they now can't open at capacity because they can't find the staff because the staff have nowhere to live. And obviously, this isn't a problem that's unique to the lakes and in the Yorkshire Dales I was seeing recently, there's some 3,100 of the national parks, 12,000 properties have now become either holiday lets or second homes. And the Yorkshire Dales Park Authority is looking at changing the rules so that barn conversions will only be allowed for holiday lets as part of farm diversification schemes. So is this a problem that central government ought to be grasping or are there sufficient powers at local level to to do something about this? Do, do local councils have the levers to tackle this issue, this issue by themselves? They don't really, and they would like them, and we would like them. Uh, the Yorkshire Dales National Park, um, I'm you know blessed to have both the Dales and the Lake District in my constituency, and, and, and both national parks I've worked with, they're both in favour of a proposal that I've put to government, which would allow them to increase council tax up to 200% on second homes, um, but also... Uh, I think a really crucial thing that needs to happen is to change planning law, because at the moment, if you want to change a house into a second home or a holiday let, you can just do it. You don't need to apply for planning permission. Um, and so the market is such that that's exactly what will happen in so many places, even places that were not, you know, your traditional Lake District villages, even places that are outside the national parks, but are in other, you know, attractive bits of Cumbria and North Yorkshire, um, you're finding people um, uh, buying second homes and the and the housing stock just evaporating into um, into a non permanent state uh, lived in status. So what we could do is change planning law so that having a second home or a holiday let is a different category of planning use. If I want to change my house here into a chip shop, I'd have to apply for planning permission and I'd get a no. <laughs> um, but if I want to turn it into a second home or a holiday let, I could just do it, and that's wrong. And so if you give councils and national parks the power to police, they need the resources to police it as well, mind you, but the power to enforce and police um, uh, the tenure of, uh, of housing so that family homes, permanent homes remain permanent homes, that will make a big difference. It's not, it's not that we can't have any second homes and it's not that we can't have any holiday lets because holiday lets especially are an important part of the tourism economy. But you absolutely can have too many and we've definitely got too many. 
as you say, it would co- there would be a certain financial implication to it in that authorities would need the resource to be able to police what was going on. I mean, do, do you think that might be a stumbling block in terms of the government agreeing to something to something like this? Well, the danger is, so if I was a minister, and it's funny, I took this up with Rishi Sunak when he was the junior planning minister. So that's how long we've been going on about this, um, and long before his time as well. Uh, the The argument against making the change on planning law is it'd be hard to enforce. Well, the answer to that is, you know, double the size of planning departments so they can enforce them. Um, do we really care about this or not? And, and, and we should care about it. You know, as, as I said at the beginning, we have had this problem for a long time. Something like one in seven properties in my constituency is not lived in. There's probably so about 7,000 or so homes not lived in. By the way, three and a half thousand families on the council house waiting list. Now, I'm not saying that we should immediately requisition um, those homes, but I am saying that there's a, an obvious problem here and we need to do something about it. And, it, and it, we've had an erosion of our housing stock for decades now. But, um, you know, I just about remember my O-level geography and, um, you know, erosion um, happens over a long, long period of time. But then one day a whole cliff will fall into the sea. And that's what's happened with our housing stock. And it's not just in the Lake District, as you rightly say, it's in North Yorkshire, it's in the Southwest. I was talking to people in North Devon the other week who said that they've seen a 70% drop in the private rented sector in their district. And that is, you know, again, people, uh, landlords moving their properties from um, affordable rented um, uh, permanent status to being wholly let of one kind or another. And, you know, they'll and they'll then find out that there aren't any people sending their kids to the local school. And there won't be anybody to work in local businesses. So we need to intervene. Free markets are only really free if they're fair. And that's why we need to have a referee. And so a referee would be changing the planning rules, changing the powers for councils to increase council tax on second homes. So we could redistribute that money to support local communities and build more affordable homes. And then also give planning authorities the power to actually police those new changes. Another big issue for a lot of your constituents is the future of farming in this country and specifically the impact on the reforms to the way farmers are paid now that the UK has left the European Union and the common agricultural policy. Obviously, a major trade deal was signed last month with Australia, the first to be drawn up from scratch since Brexit, which could have major implications for farmers. But what what are your constituents from farming families saying to you about their big concerns at the moment? I mean, they're furious really furious um and there are two or three main reasons why farmers are furious and i'm going to say totally justifiably furious um the first is the transition from the old payment system to the new one um you know acronym alert um, bps basic payment scheme which is where farmers were getting a significant amount of their money beforehand and currently moving to something that's going to be called elms which is quite suitable environmental land management scheme um and most people think that elms is really good in principle the idea that we pay farmers for, for public goods um you know nature um flood prevention biodiversity access all those sorts of things you know good but it's all in theory at the moment and what's happened is that last month in december farmers lost that lost the first chunk of their farm payment their basic payment they lost between 5 and 25% of that payment in December. And very, very, very few of them, I mean, well less than 5% of them, uh, have any access to anything to replace it. 
So most people um, would not be able to cope with a loss of between 5 and 25% of their income and with no route to getting anything to replace it. So they're furious because of that. They're secondly furious about the trade deals, not least because the likes of Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, great people, great places. We should have trade deals with those countries, but not unfair ones. And the fact is that animal welfare and environmental standards in Australia in particular and New Zealand also, and America for that matter, are significantly worse than ours because they have huge ranches. And so they have a massive loss rate. Um, their attention to the welfare of animals is tiny compared to ours, and therefore it's cheaper. And so what we've got is Australian produce, particular um, animal produce coming into the UK, produced uh, with lower standards environmentally and in terms of animal welfare, and therefore cheaper, undermining our standards in this country, but also undercutting our farmers. So it's ethically wrong and economically disastrous for our farmers. The third thing, I said it was two or three things. The third thing is farmers are on the front line to ta- uh, when it comes to tackling climate change, but they resent, understandably resent, the implication from government that climate change is all their fault. Over 70% of uh, England's land mass is agricultural land. Only 10% of our, em- our emissions are agriculturally sourced. And so farmers should be seen as the uh, the way we tackle climate change, not the people to beat because of it. And I think those things together have added up to a situation where British farmers are furious and deserting the Conservative Party at a rate of knots. Now, you were talking before we came on air about North Shropshire and the impact of, sort of what's going on with farming on that. You were suggesting that amongst farmers, the Conservative support has dipped and, and you're getting some of that support in constituencies like North Shropshire and presumably in constituencies like yours and other sort of rural r- rural areas. What's your evidence for that? Well, North Shropshire is a good example, a good evidence um, for it. Uh, there's some polling that has shown that Conservative support amongst farmers has dropped by 20% and ours has doubled. But all the same, yeah, it, there's, a, a, there's a lot of movement to happen before the collapse of, you know, the, uh, what should we call it, the green wall? I don't know. Um, but for sure, um, what we have seen and what farmers definitely feel is a sense of being completely taken for granted by the Conservatives and being misled, whether it be on trade deals or the change in the payment system. And what farmers are desperate for is for people in politics to listen to them and to understand them and to and to make their case to the country. Because the thing about farmers is that they are essential to almost everything we do. The food we eat, uh, the fact that our towns and villages aren't flooded, the fact that we've got um, you know clean air to breathe, biodiversity, and yet they're a tiny proportion of the electorate. And so they need people like me and others in Parliament to make the farming case to people who don't live in farming areas. And the problem you've got is you've got a government that just assumes that rural areas will vote for them anyway and farmers will vote for them anyway. And the consequence of that kind of lazy, complacent thinking is really bad policy, really bad policy. So trade deals that get you a splash on the front page of a newspaper, but then undermine and put out of business British farmers whilst reducing the standards that we're used to. And uh, the transition, as we've said earlier on, from a system... Um, uh, which is far from perfect to a new one, but dropping people's income, removing their income before there's any sign of anything new coming along. And I think it is. I think farmers need to understand how powerful they are, how important they are to our country, 
and how much they've been taken for granted by this party and government in particular. And we're determined as Liberal Democrats to be their voice that understands them and, and makes their case. The, the Lib Dems had a big success last month with the North Shropshire by-election. And I, I think afterwards you, you held up a big balloon saying Boris Bubble and the new MP uh, burst it with an oversize needle, which was a very, you know made a very good image. I mean, do you think that result, does it represent a genuine prospect of a turnaround in the Lib Dems' fortunes? Or was it just a kind of process vote that you get against a, a government sort of midterm going through a lot of difficulties as the Conservatives are at the moment? Important to neither overstate nor understate the importance of the uh, of the North Shropshire victory. Um, by-elections are by-elections, but having said that, um, we came from third place to win that with the most remarkable of swings. So I think it tells you something about the health of the Liberal Democrats um, uh, as a party determined to be a really important and constructive voice of opposition in this country and to speak up particularly for those communities that have been overlooked by this government. It tells you as well, I think, that people are desperate for somebody to vote for who they can believe in who will remove the Conservatives. And at the moment... Liberal Democrats seem to be better placed to do that than Labour in certain seats. Now, there are plenty of seats where that won't be the case, but it shows that, you know, I, I wish Keir Starmer well for what it's worth. It's good, it's good for our democracy if the Labour Party becomes more electable than it has been. But I think we're in a place where we have shown that um, we can become a vehicle for people to vote for in order to get the things that they want and to provide a meaningful alternative to the Conservatives that Labour haven't been able to do nationwide just yet. So it's good news to Lib Dems. Let's not overstate it, but it's it's real important momentum for us. It's also a little sign that it's not just Remain voting, you know, suburbia voting Liberal Democrat. Um, it is areas like mine. Now, my, my area did just about vote Remain, but only just about. And areas like Cumbria, North Yorkshire, Shropshire, Northumberland, rural communities that Labour are never, ever, 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 ever in a month of Sunday is ever going to win. But with the Liberal Democrats might, we've shown that we really could. And that's important for democracy because we have an electoral system that breeds two horse races. Um, and if there's only one horse, then you know democracy. And in so many of those places, it's been just the one horse. Well, we've just become the second horse in those rural communities. And that gives us real hope for democracy. And rural communities have somebody on their side who can actually win. Tim Fowen MP, thank you very much for your time today. It's now the part of the Northern Agenda podcast where we check in on a northern city or town to find out what the big political issues are locally. This week we're in York, the historic cathedral city founded by the Romans nearly 2,000 years ago and which has at various times been a wool-making hub, and a centre for the railway network. But what are the hot topics for local politicians in 2022? Let's find out with Joe Cooper, the local democracy reporter for York. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. Hi, thanks for having me. There's a lot going on in York, and obviously it's a, a, a city with a long history. But the first thing you wanted to talk about is the fact that in recent times, the politics of York have been pretty volatile. Take us through what it's been like in the past few years. Yeah, sure. So I think this is kind of key to um, understanding the political landscape in York really is this volatility. So it's three-way marginal between the Lib Dems, Labour and the Conservatives. And it's changed hands every election since it became a unitary authority in the mid-90s. And as far as I can tell, back to the back to the 70s, really. So and even in the past 10 years, 
Um, it's gone from Labour controlled to Conservative led coalition with the Lib Dems in 2015 to the current situation, which is an informal coalition between the Lib Dems, the largest party, and three Greens. The Tories really hammered in the last elections in 2019 and were left with just two councillors. And there's also a York independent group made up of former Conservative councillors and two separate independent councillors. So it's quite a vibrant political makeup when you look at it. Uh, the current leaders, Liberal Democrat Keith Aspden, and then you've got the Green Party's Andy de Gorn, who is his deputy, and Andy's wife, Denise Craghill, is also a senior councillor on the party's executive. So that's the kind of bird's eye view of the of, of the situation over the past sort of 10 or so years. It's interesting, isn't it? Because York is, in terms of its MPs, there's a, a Labour MP for the central part of York and a Tory MP for the outer part of York, which I guess, yeah, like you say, kind of uh, speaks to the uh, quite diverse nature of the politics. Yeah. And another thing that's interesting is that this perception that York is a bit of, is a council with a bit of a culture problem that and that, which has surfaced in, in recent years and months. What have some of the big sort of uh, con- controversies been? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're exactly right there, Rob, with them. Um... Is you've got Rachel Maskell in the, in the centre, who's a, who's a Labour MP, but it's in these outer, outer wards, which are often fought over by Conservatives and Liberal Democrats, which, yeah, make up for this changing landscape. And one thing I've sort of really picked up on in York is this, what might be termed a sort of culture problem. Now, some people would say that this volatility, the political volatility and instability contributes to this problem of what you might term as governance issues. So over many years, we're talking about uh, accusations of bullying, secrecy, poor working relationships between the parties, between the politicians and officers. So just last last month, um, a local government association official who's been working with the council for many years said, you've got to get a grip on this problem once and for all, sort it out, you know, um, sort of, it was a telling off, grow up. Um, and said they should stop blaming their problems on the fact they have a volatile political makeup. He said other places have similar situation to you, but manage to do it to do it better. And so, the sort of most publicly embarrassing of, of, of sort of emblematic of these problems, most publicly embarrassing stories, have been two public interest reports that have been issued to the council since uh, twenty sixteen. And these are really quite rare for upper tier authorities and a real embarrassment really to be to be issued with one. Um, so the auditors look at the accounts and say, and if there's an issue they say needs bringing to the attention of the council and the wider public, they'll issue a report. So in 2016, they got one relating to the way top council officers were paid in regards to the authorities trading company, City of York Trading. And they didn't say that um, the legality of the payments was an issue, but they raised concerns about transparency, risks of con- conflicts of interest. And there was another one just last year regarding the exit of the former chief executive, Mary Weistall. So it emerged that she had dropped a tribunal claim, which included allegations of bullying and victimisation against the council leader, Keith Aspen, after a £400,000 payout was agreed for her at a, se- a secret meeting, which uh, Councillor Aspen chaired without declaring an interest. So you've got this kind of, um, but those, those people actually mostly are still are still in the council. Keith Aspen's clung on uh, despite a, um, uh, a vote of no confidence in him and actually appears pretty strong at the moment. So th- this is the kind of culture we, we see in the council. Labour say the fish rots from the head is what the um, Labour leader said last month. 
um, of the council. But it's important to note as well that some of these issues have been going on for many years and, and it doesn't seem to be the uh, fault of just one political party. Now, I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast uh, around the north or around the country, if they've been to York, they'll know it as a tourist or maybe they might have gone to a stag do or a Hindu in York. There's a lot of those, aren't there? Or they've you know, gone to visit the, the Minster or the Railway Museum or the you know the Fudge Kitchen, which is a big favourite of mine. Um, but that status as a sort of tourist hotspot in a, in a small city, that does breed some tension doesn't it how, how does that manifest itself yeah absolutely so as you say rob i, I visited the um, christmas market um you know just last month and it was absolutely heaving and people will know that if they if they went there or even if they go there on a weekend i suppose the, the problem you've got is york's medieval roots which is what attracts people to the city is also part of its problem you know it's um quite small narrow you've got thousands of tourists jam-packed traffic it wasn't built for this right so now the council's faced with the issue of, well, who's the city for and what's it going to look like in the future? Obviously, tourism plays a big, a big part in the city's success. It's helped it bounce back from the pandemic because it's got a thriving independent sector. People want to come here from um, the rest of the UK and around the world. But that inevitably leads to some tension, as you say, between some of those sort of stag dudes and hen dudes pouring out between the, the city's pubs and the locals who feel, well, you know, this is my city, I want to feel part of it and I can go in there too on, on a weekend. They're looking at a new strategy over the next 10 years, which could see visitors asked to make donations, attractions. They will be voluntary while residents were given uh, discounts to try and sort of offset, if, if you like, the, the impacts of tourism. So that's one thing they're looking at. I mean, another issue that uh, relates to this almost sort of space problem is... They're wanting to create a more sort of European style cafe culture, which we've seen out of the pandemic. But then the problem is cars. Do you know, do you have cars in city centre? Uh, and out of that's arisen probably the most controversial story in the city over the past six months, the decision to ban blue badge holders from parking in some of the city centre streets. Before they had an exemption that would let them park there, obviously for access reasons, you know, to, so they're close to shops and services. So that's caused huge consternation amongst disability groups, human rights groups. And there's a crowdfunder going on now to see if um, that's legally challengeable. And I guess another manifestation of that and, you know, the the uh, very unusual way that York is built and, you know, it's it's historic uh, you know, architecture and, and the, the way the city is put together is the difficulty of building homes uh, in in and around York, which um, obviously is an issue in a lot of places, but it is uh, a, a very pronounced local issue for City of York Council, isn't it? What, what's been happening with that? As you say, it's an issue in, in you know, in, in highly desirable areas around the country, but particularly in York, Rachel Maskell, York, York Central MP, raised it, um, repeatedly raised it, and only just last month did so again in a debate, saying housing is increasingly unaffordable, calling it a racket, or even or professionals are struggling. She said prices grew by 14% in the last year, which she said was faster than anywhere else in the north. It's the fourth least affordable place to rent outside of London. So then you have the question of, well, can people who work in those vital tourism and hospitality sectors which sustain the city, can they afford to live there? Can even can social care workers who struggle enough as it is afford to live here? Can even those professionals, higher paid graduate roles, can they afford to live in the city? Housing experts have said that, that it's recognised as a bit of a hotspot for failing to deliver 
uh, affordable homes. The council does have a, has a plan for this. It's got its own housing delivery program, which includes 600 homes on council-owned sites across the city. But you know, th- there's, there's wider factors here, which you see across the country. You know, right to buy, meaning that council housing stock often gets then bought back up. It links as well to the to the uh, the council's local plan. Somewhat dreaded phrase, but it's, it's an important thing because it's um, how what what the outline document which says what can what housing developments will be built in the city over the next 15 years it's another issue that's dragged on uh, in the city for many years over successive administrations because york still doesn't have one government inspectors are getting fed up they're saying what's going on where's where's the progress you're not communicating enough with us um council says it's committed to it but politically, it's tricky for the Lib Dems. They have these more affluent rural outer wards with more space. But do they want to be seen to be giving over some of that greenbelt land for housing when there's um, elections in 2023? So that's the political task for them. Now, I guess it, it's, a, it's a bit odd that given we've been talking about the lack of space in York, the city actually has this site, York Central, which is just uh, across the road from the, the city's railway station. And it's the biggest brownfield site in the UK. And, and I mean, I've been reading articles for years about all the things that are going to be built there. I think at one stage, it was even suggested that the, the Houses of Parliament uh, might be temporarily moved moved there while Parliament was being redone. But what, what's, what's the latest with that? And is there a bit of a political row over what, what's being done with it? Yeah, exactly. I think I, um, I remember, I think thought at the time that was a bit of a just a total baseless claim about the Houses of Parliament thing, but it seemed like they were serious up here and they actually planned for it and they even produced some maps showing where it could fit in. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't seem that's going to happen for the city, but the wider site, it's, it's huge. Anyone that's come out sort of the back way of York Station towards Lehman Road will, will know it's, it's a bit of a depressing area, really, and, and certainly needs a, a, a revamp and could fit a huge amount of um, development in there. It's 42 hectares, hectares, and they're hoping to have 2,500 new homes, 6,000 jobs, 1.2 million square feet of commercial development, and an upgrade to the National Railway Museum. So it's, it's a huge thing. And again, that's been bubbling away for decades. Some people thought it's, it's never going to happen. Um, but shovels are in the ground. York's Lib Dems are very pleased about this. But the York Central Partnership is made up of Homes England, Network Rail, the council and national railway museum but there's politically a bit of debate really about who's in the driving seat homes england and network rail own most of the land but labor say the council sort of ceded control with a lot of the project um and labor sort of see this as part of the lib dem being technocratic administrators who would just hand it over and 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 let this sort of happen rather than having what labor would see as as a particular vision there's also a real grassroots campaign to try to make sure as much of the development uh, as possible is community owned. That's York Central co-owned have come up with their, with their own plan, um, their own vision that would see profits from the site reinvested within the local area. It's a huge development um, and that's obviously the interest from big developers, international money, you know, uh, flowing in. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, that, that plays out. I think the community groups fear it could become a sort of soulless void of Airbnbs and hotel chains, but the director of the partnership says, you know, you know, we don't want this. Uh, we want to get you involved. We want to get something that's really going to be a model for the rest of the city and play into York's sort of proud history, really, of being at the forefront of sort of social change, I suppose.
Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.